We're doing a topical study of the book of Proverbs. We're not going, you know, line for line, verse for verse. But uh, what we are doing is we are hitting on certain topics that Proverbs deals with. Um, the one that we're looking at currently is trusting in the Lord with all of thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths that's found in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through through 6 did I get that up there? yep I did and so um, you know our relationship with the Lord is referred to as a walk in the Bible uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 says as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk ye in him and it was faith it was uh, faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior that began our relationship in the first place so uh, so faith uh, saves us and also our walk with God in faith is also what sanctifies us it's also what uh, gets us closer to God strengthens our relationship with God and it is very vital that we learn in our relationship with God that we can trust in him in fact uh, Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. So a part of our walking with the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior is trusting in Him as our is our Lord as well. So I approached this topic of, of uh, having faith in God by asking three questions. Uh, the first question that I asked and we dealt with is, is God trustworthy? Is God worthy of my trust? Is God someone that I can trust? And of course, the short answer is yes. God is a is is someone you can trust in. He is someone who is faithful. He is worthy of our faith. And there's numerous testimonies in the Bible about folks who did that very thing, in spite of their circumstances, and in spite of the afflictions that they they experienced, in spite of the situations that they were faced with. Um, they learn for themselves that God indeed is trustworthy. He is worthy of their faith. He is worthy of their trust. Even folks who may have stumbled, even folks who may have sinned, even folks who may have had periods of doubt, God proved himself faithful in every uh, circumstance uh, that they went through. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 is full of individuals who learned that God is worthy of faith. He is worthy of our trust. So, that first question we dealt with is God worthy of our trust or is he trustworthy the answer of course is yes the next question uh, that we dealt with in regards to trusting in the Lord with all of our heart is uh, does God truly know better or does God truly know better than me or does God true, uh, true be- uh, know better than some than others and I rephrase the question does father know best of course, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, our Father does know best. And I keyed off of the verse in Psalms 147.5 that says, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Now the thing is, is that God doesn't always inform us what he's doing, does he? In fact, honestly, God's not even obligated to tell us what's going on. The only requirement, the only expectation that God has for us is to trust him. Is to simply trust him during those times when we can't lean our own understanding, but we uh, learn to lean on God as as far as uh, he knowing best, as far as his wisdom is being infinite. Um, I was reminded when I was reviewing this to myself, I was reminded what Paul wrote 
Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 8, uh, in, in, regards to, in regards to this matter. Uh, does God really know what he's doing? Can I trust in God uh, that he knows what he's doing? And in verse 8 in 2 Corinthians 12, we read, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, when we... We look at something um, as the goal as as the goal to be achieved, right? We have a task that we want to finish. We have a, a mission that we're on. We've got a project that we're involved in, and in our mindset, it's 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 the finishing of the task that's the goal, right? It's it's reaching that finish line. Um, but I think God looks at looks at things a little differently than we do. To God, the goal is not so much achieving the end, but it's the process. It's the process that he puts us through. Uh, it's that process of developing in us that, that Christ-likeness that's evidenced by our faith and, and by our obedience to the Lord. And I think this is the thing that we have to keep in mind. Uh, the Lord knows the outcome. He already sees the beginning from the end. Right? He, he already knows the outcome. Uh, we just simply need to trust in him from the beginning to the end. It's that middle part that God wants us to trust him about. Because that middle part is really what God is, is, is working with. That's what he's working with you on, is that middle part, getting you from the beginning to the end through whatever it is that he's... That he's uh, He's uh, taking us through. And unfortunately what happens with many of us is that we start thinking that we know better than God does. And so what we end up doing is, is we end up hindering that process that God is working, trying to work out in our life. And so we try to take over from God. We try to tell God what to do and how to do things. And, and when we finally learn, yeah, God knows exactly what he's doing, I just simply need to trust in him and allow his grace to work out in my life. I need to cooperate with him in faith and obedience through this process. And when we do, then we come to the same realization that the Apostle Paul did. Uh, even though when I'm weak... In my own wisdom, my own understanding, when I trust in the Lord, that's when I'm strong. That's when I'm really strong. So it's that process that uh, that God works us through that that's, that proves that His understanding is infinite. You know, this was uh, further reinforced to me when I was going through a, my personal devotion this past week. I was reading uh, about uh, the life of Abraham and everything that Abraham and Sarah went through as far as uh, Sarah being barren. I mean, when we're first introduced to Abraham in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, one of the, one of the very first things that we learn about in regards to Abraham and Sarah is that Sarah was barren. I mean, right off the bat, when we are introduced to, to Abraham and Sarah, that's, that's the one thing that we are introduced to, is that Sarah, Sarah's inability to have children. And then as you read through the life of Sarah and Abraham, it's all about this promised child, isn't it? 
It's all about this promised child, this, this child that we later on come to know of as Isaac. And so we see Abraham, you know, they make mistakes, they go down to Egypt, and then they come back with this gal by the name of Hagar, and then Sarah says, well, God, obviously, you know, he, he, he you know, he's not going to come through with uh, having me have a child, so why don't you, uh, you know, take Hagar on, and, and maybe that's what God has in mind, I don't know, you know, what's, what the thought process was, so Ishmael's born, and boy, that opens up a can of worms, and Anyway, they go through all of this, right? We go through all of this. And even when Sarah and Abraham misstep, even when Sarah, uh, Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister, what does God do? He's faithful, isn't he? And, he, and, he, and Isaac is born just as God promised. Um, he brings it through. Because God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing and God is worthy of our trust and even though we might stumble in unbelief and even though we may might make mistakes and even though we might try to run the show thinking that we know better God really is the one who who knows better he's the one uh, that we must learn to trust in and lean upon him and not lean upon our own understanding and then we come to, now we're to the third question we finally reach the third question when folks are confronted with trouble, when folks are confronted with affliction, when folks are put in a place in their life where they have to trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean out on their own understanding, they ask the question, does God really care? Does God really care what's going on with me? Does God really care about my circumstances? Does God really care about my situation? And I think out of all the questions that we ask ourselves when we're placed in a position where we must trust God, this is probably the most often asked question. Does God care? I mean, I know that's certainly the question of, uh, of your unbelievers and your scorners and your scoffers. Uh, that's what they're, they're always hurling in the face of God's people and even accusing God of. I, I don't know how many times I've witnessed to somebody and, and one of their arguments against believing in God is, well, if God really cares or if God's really a God of love, then why is all this bad stuff going on? You know, why is there evil in the world? Why does God allow all these bad things to happen? And uh, the answer to that is a, is a simple answer. And a lot of folks don't like simple answers because they like to convolute things. And this simple answer is not something that may satisfy, you know, your deep thinkers. But the real reason why things are so messed up in the world is because of you and me. It's because of man's sin. It's because of man's sin. That's, that's, why, that's why things are all messed up. I mean, that's, that's the simple answer of it. But, you know, like Adam first did in the garden, we want to pass the blame of our failure onto somebody else. We want to accuse or blame somebody else for what's going on or what's going wrong. We don't ever want to take responsibility for our for our own uh, faults. Genesis 3:12, and the man said, "The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat." What did Adam just do there? Yeah, he blamed Eve, but also by extension, what did he do? 
he blamed God, right? In other words, he's saying, if you would have never given me this woman, I'd still be okay. No, chances are he wouldn't have been okay. Chances are he wouldn't have been okay. But people, they still do this today. They, they blame others for their sin. They blame others for the way things are all messed up, but they don't take a good look at themselves and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm the reason why I'm in the mess that I'm in. I'm the reason why this isn't working in my marriage. This is, I'm the reason why all this is going on in my life. You know, we don't want to take that responsibility. We don't want to take that responsibility. That's why people like to blame God or like to blame others. Uh, and they like to throw it at God's feet. No. No. It's not God's fault. It's, it's your fault. It's your fault. And even the sinful state of things we know being Bible believers, it goes even further back than Adam, doesn't it? It goes all the way back to a creature that said one day, I am going to be like the Most High. That's where it all started. That's where it all started. This prideful creature wanted God's job. He thought that he knew better than God. And he could run the show better. So that's really really where it all starts. But you know what? Even in this, even with all of mankind messing things up, even with that creature so long ago trying to take God's throne away from him, even in all of that, God's love is seen in this. God's love is seen in this. You see, because God could have very easily just wiped everything out, like erasing the whiteboard. He could have wiped everything out and he could have been totally content to exist within himself, within the Trinity. Totally content. Job 34, 14-15 says, If he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. You see, the very people who scream about God's um, not doing something about the evil in the world forget that they're a component of that evil. And if God would do as they desire, if God were to go and just wipe out all evil on earth, guess what would happen? They'd go right along with it. They'd be swept up in that dustpan and out, out in the trash. Everybody, everybody would go. Everybody would go. So you see, God's love is even, even in that. The very nature of God is love. The very nature of God is love. And, and, and it's, in, it's essential in the nature of, of a loving God to show good and mercy to his creation. That's, that's his nature. That's his nature. And it's this very nature of God's love that we trust in with all of our heart. That we believe in. That we have faith in. That God's very nature is, a, is that he's a merciful God. That he is a loving God. That he is a good God. Psalm 130 verse 3 he says, If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Nobody. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. 
Romans 2 verse 4 or despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance you know why God doesn't bring the hammer down on this world because he wants people to repent he wants people to get right with him 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Even when God has to bring judgment. Ezekiel 33.11 says Say unto them as I live saith the Lord I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways for why will ye die that's God's heart God is not this big meanie in the sky just weighing the clobber people God is a God of life he loves life This is why sin is so detestable to God because what is the fruit of sin? Death. Death. Death is the very opposite of what God is. God hates sin because of death. In fact, what is the very first thing that God created? Anybody want to take a guess? The very first thing God created. Was it material? Nobody wants to answer. Was it light? The very first thing that God created was life. Life. What's my proof text? Job chapter 38 verses 1 through uh, 6 or 7. Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched a line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who have, who, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He's talking about creation. But who are these morning stars? Who are these sons of God that were that was present at that time? It was the angelic host. It was the angelic host. This was the angelic host before Lucifer rebelled and, and took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. God created the angelic host first, these living beings first, and then he created all of creation. And these angels witnessed this great light show as God put the universe and the galaxy and everything into existence. And they rejoiced and sang praises and worshipped God during this time. So it was life that God first created because God is all about life. He's all about life. I would dare say that God is pro-life more than pro-choice. 
He loves life. That's why he's full of forgiveness and mercy. That's why he's long-suffering. That's why he's willing to forgive. Because he wants men to choose life over death. But, God is also a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. And fire in the Word of God has two purposes. It either destroys or it purifies. It either destroys or it purifies. Being a holy God and a righteous God, He must deal with sin. He must deal with sin. If God didn't deal with sin, then He wouldn't be a just God, and then the critic would be right. There is no justice in this, in this, in this world. But there is justice. It's just that justice is long-suffering. Because it's not willing that any should perish. It is sin that is the corrupting, death-inducing factor that we see at work all around us today. It's sin that has resulted in disease and famine and warfare and ultimately the death of all living things. As much as you may want to shift the blame on God, it's, it's, it's man's sin that is the primary cause of all the evil in this world. And as Ezekiel 33.11 teaches us, even when God must judge men for their sin, He doesn't take pleasure in their death. That's a loving God. He's a just God. He's also a loving God. He wants us all to repent. This is why it seems like the wicked are getting away with their wickedness. This is why God doesn't bring the hammer down when we think He should bring the hammer down. Remember, He knows best because He's long suffering. He's long suffering. There comes a day He will. There comes a day that he will bring the hammer down and none shall stand. But for now, that day is um, held back. Held back. So in light of this fundamental issue of sin, uh, the answer to the question of does God care, what would you say the answer is? Yes. Sure he cares. Sure he cares. This care is seen of God and how he has addressed this fundamental issue that every one of us in this room has to deal with on a daily basis. Do you think you guys are sinless? No. We've been forgiven of our sin, but we're not sinless. That day is coming, but it's not, it's not today. God's taking care of this issue of sin. How many in here can quote John 3.16? Just raise your hand. Can you quote John 3.16? Yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, what about the next two verses? 17 and 18. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. 
But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, man remains condemned by his own choice. Man remains condemned by his own choice because he has spurned the love of God. He has spurned the love of God. And that's proven by his unbelief. Man has rejected the supreme act of love that God has bestowed upon man by sending his son to die on behalf of sinful man. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He's rejected it. He spurned God's love. You see, that's what the sin is. The sin is not breaking the law. The sin is sinning against God's love. The sin is sinning against God's love. The law cannot save. See, that's what man thinks. Man thinks the law can save, but the law cannot save. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In each and every dispensation, God has provided a means whereby sinful man may be reconciled to God, and that means has always been by a blood sacrifice. The death of an innocent in substitution for the guilty. From Abel to the time of Jesus Christ, that has been God's way of doing things. That's been God's way of doing things. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Hebrews 9.22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. I had a, we were discipling a couple one time, and the, the fellow that we were discipling took offense at this. They didn't like the idea that, of the blood. And I said, well, you know, don't, don't take it up with me, take it up with God. That's the way God established it from the beginning. That's the way God established it from the beginning. God first established this precedent concerning the blood atonement. Guess where? In the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, partook of the tree, discovered themselves to be naked, what did they do? Yeah, they made fig leaves. That had to be uncomfortable. But they made fig leaves. But they had sinned, and now they were under the sentence of death. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. God had warned Adam and Eve of the consequence of their disobedience. Genesis 2.15-17, and the Lord took man, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. 
So when Adam and Eve took of the fruit, they became transgressors. <laughs> First uh, John 3, 4, Whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. That's what they did. They transgressed God's law. And so now, they had a death sentence on them. They had a death sentence on them. The very warning that God... Um, had warned them of if they transgressed this one command that they would die pretty easy command wasn't it don't eat of that tree that's pretty simple what Adam discovered is the same thing that Paul had discovered Romans 7 7 what shall we say then is the law sin God forbid Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, <laughs> concupiscence, for without the law, sin is dead. You know when Adam and Eve realized that they were sinners? That first bite. When they broke the law. When they broke the law. Sin always results in death in some form or some fashion. It always does. James 1.14 through 15, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. It always results in death of some form of some fashion. And if this wasn't tragic enough, as far as Adam and Eve is concerned, guess what we inherited? Yeah, there's sin nature. We inherited that sin nature. Followed with that death sentence. Romans 5, 12 through 14 says, And wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin? And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for unto, this, for unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Right? So before they ate the apple, they were good. Nevertheless, I don't know if it was an apple, I just say that. All right? I just say that. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Right? Uh, there's no tree of knowledge, good and evil, now. Who is the figure of him that was to come? See, we have inherited the sin nature from Adam. And when sin entered into the heart of man, death came through the very same door. They go hand in glove. One of my daughters asked me, we had a pet pass away. And one of my daughters asked me as we were burying the pet in the backyard, why, why do things die? I said, things die because of sin. That's why things die. Because of sin. I know you guys know this, but death in the Bible is, um, for lack of a better term, multidimensional. <laughs> multidimensional. There's physical death. I think we're all familiar with physical death. That's when the spirit leaves the body and the body is lifeless. Because what, what you are is not what you see here, right? You understand that, guys? What animates this shell 
is our spirit, is, is, is that soul within us. This perishes. What we truly are doesn't. So when, when this, it's like what it said in Leviticus 8:51 through 55, when Jesus went to raise that little girl up off of her sick bed, she had died. And she said, made arise, and her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. Her spirit had left the body, and the body was dead. Jesus called the spirit back into the body. And now the body was reanimated. That's that physical death. But there's also two other types of death. There's a spiritual death. A death where we are separated from God. We are separated from God because of our unatoned for sin. Ephesians 2.1 And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, being dead in trespasses and sins doesn't mean like your Calvinists will teach you that the spirit is like a possum run over in the road and if you stick it with a, a branch it's not going to move. The spirit of a lost man is alive. It's just not well. That's why we have all these different religions. That's why we have all these different spiritual disciplines. That's what Man is a spiritual being and his spirit is very much alive. It's just not well. And the only way it's going to become well is being born again when they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and the Spirit of God comes and dwells with our spirit. And we become sealed in the Spirit. And when that happens, then we become alive unto God. No longer are we separated from God because of our trespasses and sins. Does that make sense? Do you understand that? And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, who were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior... Then John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You're born again. Which means your spirit is now alive toward God. Romans 7, 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirits and not in the oldness of the letter. Colossians 2, 11 talks about that circumcision made without hands. That's that spiritual rebirth. So besides your physical death and besides the soul, uh, besides the spiritual separation because of unatoned sin, the Bible also talks about another death. Anybody want to take a stab at what that other death is? Nobody wants. It's the second death. 
Revelation 20.13 And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So those who reject God's means of salvation the death of the innocent as the substitute for the guilty and they choose to trust in their good works their fig leaves whatever those fig leaves might represent then they face a second death what is that old ditty born once die twice born twice you die once that's that's the way it goes right Sin always brings about death. It was sin that resulted in the death of Lucifer's highest state in heaven, and now he is Satan. It was sin that separated Adam from fellowship with God in the garden. That's why he hid himself, because he knew he messed up. It is sin that separates mankind from God. It is sin that causes the death and destruction of everything that we experience in this life today. It destroys relationships, it destroys marriages, it destroys careers, it just... Sin's not good. But boy, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? Terrible consequence of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Now some object to the truth about Adam, us inheriting the nature of Adam. They say it's not fair of God that uh, to blame, to, to put the guilt of Adam, what Adam did so long ago upon us who live here in the 21st century. Again, I say, well, you take that up with God because that's just the way it is. But even if they don't like what God says in his word, they still have to face the fact that all have sinned and come short to the glory of God. They still have to come face to face with the fact that there is none righteous, no, not one. So the person who objects to what the Bible clearly says that we all fall under the fallen Adamic nature, we all have inherited Adam's sin, they still have to deal with their own sin. Because I don't know about you guys, but I have never met anybody who has never sinned at least once in their lifetime. Have you? Are you that person? I want to meet you if you are. Never lied, never stole, never looked upon another woman or a man with lust in your heart. Never used the Lord's name in vain. Never coveted somebody's... Is there anybody in here that's never done that? But God has performed a great act of mercy. And that great act of mercy was first performed towards Adam and Eve. 
and he's still performing that great he's still performing that great act of mercy for for the whole world you know what that great act of mercy was he replaced the, those fig leaves with something didn't he didn't he God is the one who established the precept that the death of an innocent may atone for the sin of the guilty. Genesis 3.21 On Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Right? They, They had the fig leaves on. They were trying to cover their nakedness by the fig leaves. In effect, what they were trying to do is they were trying to cover their sin before God. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Folks, there isn't anything we can do about our sin. No amount of good works, no amount of reformation, no amount of remorse or penance. We can't do anything about it. We cannot remove that indelible stain of sin on our souls. That's why the psalmist prayed in Psalms 51.2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalms 51.7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, the psalmist knew the only person that could cleanse him of his sin was God. Because all sin is committed against God. All sin is committed against God. The scribes and Pharisees understood this as well. You remember when Jesus was going to heal the man that was sick of palsy? And he says to the man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But then certain of the Pharisees and the scribes sitting in their reasoning in their hearts, they said, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? They were absolutely right. The only thing that they got wrong was they didn't realize that God was standing in their very presence. When God made new coverings for Adam and Eve, they were made from the skin of an animal. And I would hazard a guess that that animal was a lamb because God's consistent with that kind of stuff and he covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with a lamb do you realize a lamb had to die to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve And this act of mercy was not lost upon Adam and Eve for this offering of the innocent was passed on. That's what Abel offered. They passed that on to their boys. Hebrews 11.4 By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain because Cain didn't get it. By which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and by it he being dead yet speaketh. But that's the perennial issue ever since, the offering of atonement that's acceptable to God. You know, all religions can be categorized under two, I guess, two categories. You've got 
the religion that's based upon God's grace, and then you've got the religion that's based upon man's works. Now, guess what the majority of the religions in this world, what column they fit under? Yeah, works. Works. And even if you attempt, I mean, I don't see how they can do this, but even when you attempt to mix God's grace with man's works, you still fall short. That's not grace. That's not grace. That's what Paul says in Romans 4.1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Romans 4.4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So you can't mix the two. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. God's the one who established this precept of a substitutionary death of an innocent on behalf of the guilty. That covering, that covering, that's the very same offering that Abel brought. He brought of the firstlings of the flock and offered that before God. What did Cain bring? The fruit of the ground, his labor. Cain brought that innocent lamb from the flock and by faith he offered it. That's what made him righteous. Not the offering of the lamb, but his faith in that offering. That's what God asked him to do. Cain brought the fruit of his own works, the fruit that came from a cursed earth. Genesis 3.17, curses the ground for thy sake. He brought a corrupt offering. That's what men want to do. They want to bring before God their cursed works. Prideful man doesn't like to hear this. Even your best is tainted by sin. You can't get around it. Even your best is tainted by sin. First John three, eleven through twelve, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning. That we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore he slew him? Slew he him because his own works are evil and his brother's righteous. The reason why the work of Abel was considered righteous in God's eyes because Abel offered by faith a substitute, a slain lamb, an innocent, to cover his sin that's why the world fails to see the love of God in the midst of a broken world because they are Cain (laughs) they're trying to approach God by their cursed good works they don't think they need God's covering they think their fig leaves is good enough That's why the blood is so offensive to them. 
That's why they reject God's offering of love. But yet it is God that established the precedent of love and the death of an innocent for the guilty. And one of these days they're going to find out too late. Psalm 145, 8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. That's grace. God is slow to anger. God is bestowing mercy and favor on those who don't deserve it. He's giving them time to repent. He's giving them time to repent. You know, God had promised that Adam and Eve a seed would come from the woman, which would be the ultimate act of God's love. You guys know who that seed is, don't you? Yeah, it's Jesus Christ. And as the revelation of God unfolded before men through the various dispensations of time, and God's dealings with men through all the types and figures of the Old Testament, Abraham's offering of Isaac upon the mountain, All of those things are types. All of those things are pictures that lead to the fulfillment of that type, which is Jesus Christ. And then finally in Galatians 4.3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might have, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That type was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And his coming would serve a twofold purpose. First, to destroy the works of the devil who brought the contagion of sin into God's perfect creation. Hebrews 2.14 For as much sin as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus died, he destroyed the power of death. And then to taste death for every man. Hebrews 2.9 For we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. Because God can't die. <laughs> so he came down in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's grace and mercy. He is that covering that God foreshadowed with those skins that he covered Adam and Eve with. There's a fancy Bible word, propitiation. You know what that word means? Covering. That's what it means, covering. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation a covering through faith in His blood. 1 John 2.1 My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not and if any man sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and He is the propitiation of uh, propitiation for our sins, our coverings. Not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He 
He is the final blood sacrifice for man's sin. So all this sacrificing that's going on today, First John 4, 9, And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him, hearing His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is the skin of the animal that covers our nakedness before God. And He did this for the whole world. For the whole world, First John, First uh, Timothy four nine. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. You want to get in on the covering? Believe. He's the covering for all of mankind. But the only the only way you're going to get in on the covering is believe. You have to believe in God's provision. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 That's the rub of the whole matter with the world. They don't want to believe. They like their fig leaves. They like their fig leaves. The one prerequisite that God demands of all men everywhere is not your good works, but your faith. Does God care? Yes, He cares. Do you believe He cares? That's the critical issue. That's the critical issue. 1 John 4 9. And this was manifested, made known, displayed. The love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now why did I go through all of this? I mean, you guys are going to think this is Bible 101. This is all Bible 101. Some of you probably could even do a better job than I just did in explaining all of this. I I do too. We need to be reminded of those basic things. This is why I went to this basic thing. Because the problem is this. Even after God has taken care of our greatest need, right? And we find ourselves in affliction and circumstances, we still find ourselves asking this question, does God care about me? Is that not true? Sure it's true. We, are, we were all facing a bleak eternity without God in a lake of fire and God's taking care of that for us. But yet when we stub our toe in this life, we wonder if God cares about us. Romans 8.31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And how can we be so sure that God is for us? Verse 32 of Romans chapter 8. He that spared not his own son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God has given his son, what else can he do? How else can he prove his love for you? How else can he prove that he cares for you? But yet this is what the world and the devil and your own flesh will get you to try and deny. Will get you to try and question. Will get you to hurl this accusation in God's face. Well, God, you just don't care about me. You know it will. Am I the only one that's been there? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, then I need to hear this, don't I? (laughs) I mean, stop and think about it, guys. Why should we be exempt from the enemy assaulting us with this question God doesn't care about you when the enemy assaulted our Lord and Savior pretty much with the very same question when he was in the wilderness I mean when he was on the cross Matthew 27:39, and they that passed by reviled him wagging their heads and saying thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days save thyself if thou be the son of God come down from the cross likewise also the chief priests mocking him with scribes and elders said he saved others himself he cannot save if he be the king of Israel let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him he trusted in God let him deliver him now if he will have him For he said, I am the Son of God. You see what they're doing there? That's what the enemy will do to you. Oh, you say you're a child of God. Well, where's God at now? Let me tell you something about your circumstances. They will lie to you. And they're good at it. Our circumstances will lie to us in an attempt to get us to doubt God's trustworthiness, to question His wisdom, and to even question His love for us. Our greatest need, and I know this is going to be a shocker to you guys, our greatest need is not freedom from our adversity. But yet we think it is. Our greatest need is not freedom from adversity. Our greatest need is to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. In all our, in our ways acknowledge Him and He shall guide our path. He'll direct our way. That's our greatest need is to trust God come what may. Come what may. Okay, I gotta stop. God loved us even when we were not worthy of His love. God, by His love, has included us in His love for others. Don't miss that. I drew this picture up here. Okay? Cast all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And he considers his people as the apple of his eye. 
Ephesians uh, 1 6 is one of my favorite verses. We are accepted in the beloved. Folks, God loves you as much as he loves his own son. Don't forget that. Because there are some who want you to. And when you do, that's when you become defeated. That's when you become defeated. If God's love was sufficient to meet my greatest need, my eternal salvation, surely God's love is sufficient to meet all of my lesser needs as I walk with him by faith on this planet. Amen? Holy Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, and we cannot comprehend your great love for us and we want to praise you and rejoice in you and worship you and Father in heaven help us to love you even more because of this also help us Lord God as we begin to learn to understand your love for us and comprehend the the scope of your love for us to not keep it for ourselves to not be selfish with that love but Father in heaven to share that love with others who also need to know about it as well we thank you and praise you for your son Jesus Christ who is the proof of your love for us in his name we pray amen